following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The raw ugliness of sin. The raw ugliness of sin. Let's pray. Almighty King, I cannot speak this word today without your spirit quickening me and quickening the word. I step back and ask you, Jesus, to step forward. And I ask you to speak directly to the heart of every person in the sanctuary today. Lord, we have come because we seek you, Jesus, the Son of the living God. 
May we find you now. I pray in your holy name. Amen. And all of my ministry, I have tried to speak words of encouragement to God's people. I've tried to speak words of encouragement to you. But I've increasingly, over the last weeks, having to deal with this issue of sin, I've been forced into some hard realities. I want to share those with you today. If I could, please, let's divide two camps. Let's call one camp righteousness, and let's call the other camp holiness or sanctification. You understand that righteousness and sanctification are not the same. They're different. Part of the struggle that I've had as your pastor is trying to talk about holiness when righteousness has not yet been fully dealt with. How do I know that? Because when a person sins time after time against the Lord, gains a little victory and then slips back into that wicked behavior, those wicked thoughts, that tells me that we're not dealing with holiness anymore, we're dealing with righteousness. Now let me try to explain a bit more. Let's come over on this side of the equation. Righteousness has to do with sin. Holiness has to do with the inner heart and the old man. Character issues. But righteousness has to do with sin. Let me try to make it more plain. Let's say that I sin against the Lord. That I grow angry and speak words of harshness to someone and judgmental words, pointing my finger. I'm sinning against the Lord. I want to very quickly move from that over to this side and say, it's okay, you didn't mean it. Let's get back on track with just focusing on being sanctified. If I do that, I have short-circuited the work of righteousness over on this side. No man can be made holy who is unrighteous. No man can be made holy who is unrighteous. And the word says that without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. Holiness is the requirement to enter into heaven. But if on this side in righteousness I have not dealt with the sin, I might as well forget about the encouragement the pastor is going to speak to me. Because we've used encouragement to comfort our hearts in the midst of our sin. Sin is ugly. It breaks relationships. It pierces our hearts. Let's say that that I have wronged a person. I've lied about them or I have gossiped about them. I have hurt them. That's sin. I can't just say, I'm sorry, and move over to holiness. No, there's a work that has to be done here before righteousness can spring up. I have to deal with the sin. We don't like to deal with the sin in our culture. We like to say, there, there, it's okay, I forgive you. Now let's get back on track with holiness. 
can't do that. We've got to get to the bottom of what the sin is. What did you do? What did you say? How did you act? There has to be a full confession. I said this, I did that. I went here. I did this. I... Every part of the sin has to be utterly exposed. It can't be hidden in the heart. It has to be dealt with. I remember when my grandson was just a little boy, we went into a store. And in the store, there was one section that was candy. And so he started grabbing candies and stuffing them in his pocket when no one was looking. Stuffing them in his pocket. Somebody came to me and said, Did you see that little boy that's with you? I saw him stealing candy in the store. What? That was beyond my imagination. Now I had several choices. I could get in the car with Michael and I could say, Michael, you shouldn't have been stealing that in there. That was wrong. Now give Papa your candy. And said, now don't do that again. Mm, That's what I could have done, right? Or I could get out of the car and I could march Michael Stephen back in to the clerk and make him tell the clerk what he has done and put the candy on the counter and say, I'm sorry, I should not have done that. Well, that's exactly what I did. I made him turn his pockets inside out in front of the clerk. Tears were coursing down his face. He was embarrassed. The spotlight was on his wicked behavior. We got home. Now Papa has to do what Papa has to do. Michael, you need to come see Papa. And we went to a bedroom. And in the bedroom, I reviewed for Michael what he had done. He had stolen candy from the shop. He had taken what was not his. I reviewed with him the teaching that I had given him many times. Don't touch, just look. Before we'd gone in that store, I'd said, Michael, don't touch anything in that store. You may look at anything, but don't touch anything. If you want to touch something, you come get Papa, and we'll look at it together. But you don't touch anything. I said, Michael, do you remember that I said, don't touch? Uh Uh-huh. I said, all right, Michael. This is what you've done. You've brought shame on your family, and you've brought shame on yourself. Now, you've made it right with the clerk, but now you're going to have to make it right with me. And then after you deal with me, you're going to have to deal with Jesus. So the way you're going to have to deal with me is I'm going to spank you. Because this is necessary that you will remember next time you're in a store that if you reach out your hand and take candy, there is pain associated with that. So I turned him over my knee and I gave him a sound spanking. More tears. Then when we were finished with that, I said, now you have to make it right with Jesus. Do you understand? Making sin right is not simply Oh, I couldn't help myself. Oh, please, I'm sorry, forgive me. No, there are consequences for sin. And so we got down on our knees together. I said, Michael, now you tell Jesus what you did. You tell him you're sorry and you ask him to please forgive you. And ask him to pay for your sin. 
Because Jesus isn't going to give you a spanking this time. I gave it to you. Next time, he may give it to you. See, you and I are big boys and girls now. And mom and dad are gone. They can't give me spankings anymore. But believe me, Jesus can. And does. So Michael, with tears, confessed to Jesus what he had done. There are consequences for sin. It is not enough to say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. I didn't, I didn't think it'd do any harm. Sin is an utterly deceptive and wicked thing, and there is no excuse for sin. If there were an excuse for sin, it would not be sin. And all sin has consequences. We can blank out our mind and pretend that there are no consequences, but we will see it in our finances. We'll see it in our relationships. We'll see the consequences of God's judgment coming upon us if we don't deal all the way to the bottom with our sin. The malicious talk, the pointing of the finger, bitterness and anger, gossip, lying, cheating, stealing, lust, whatever the sin is, it comes straight out of the heart of the devil to separate you from Jesus. And it will separate you. So see again what I'm talking about over here on this side of righteousness. We're dealing with with actions. We're dealing with inner decisions. We're talking about those basic elements of our life where we are saying, I will be God. I will take charge of my own life and I will be God. That is the very heart of all sin. I will be God. Righteousness has to do with ending that rebellion against God. All rebellion is sin against God. Sin is by very definition voluntary rebellion against the Most High. It is the decision that says, I will do my life the way I choose. I'm in charge of my life. I am not accountable to anyone or anything. That's why the scriptures say that in the final judgment, every knee will bow before Jesus. Every knee will bow because every mouth will confess. Nothing will be hidden on that day. Everything will be open to the eyes of the Lord and everyone else who is in the courtroom. The judgment will be set. The books will be opened. And every hidden thing will be brought forward into the light of day. Over here on this other side is the question of holiness. It's where a man or a woman has finally decided in their heart they'll no longer rebel against the Most High. And now those, even the most basic of character issues are dealt with as the Lord exposes what they are and we submit them to Jesus and they're removed from our hearts. There's a story in the scripture that I want to share with you today. The kingdom of Judah had become aligned with the house of Ahab in Israel. Ahab was the most wicked ruler of that day. The house of Ahab, of Omri. Ahaz was the king. His mother was a daughter of the Omnes. When Jehu came into power, he killed the king of Israel and of Judah, and he became king of Israel. Athaliah, his mother, saw that the king of Judah was dead and promptly began to kill all of the children of the king. Grandma decided that she would rule. And so as this Jezebel takes her place 
as the king of Judah, the wife of the high priest, steals one of the sons of the king away through his wife. And they hide this little boy in the temple of the Lord. Now, it's not likely that that little boy is going to be discovered in the temple because people aren't going to the temple these days. The services are not being held. The temple's closed. In the seventh year, Jehoiada, the the priest, takes this little boy, Joash, and the scriptures say the priest showed his strength. He organized a coup. He put the guards in place. He had this little boy, seven years old, come and stand at the temple. And they made a covenant with him to be king. And they blew the trumpets and proclaimed him king over Judah. Athaliah, hearing the trumpets, hearing the people shout, comes rushing out to see what's going on. She sees this little fellow, seven years old, with the crown on his head, and she freaks out and says, treason, treason. The priest says, take her. And anyone who follows her, take her out of the temple and execute her with a sword. That's exactly what they did. They killed her with a sword. And now the priest functions as king with Joash being the front man. A covenant is made with the people that they will be the Lord's people and revival breaks out in the land. You know it's true revival because we find in Second Chronicles, the 23rd chapter, all the people in verse 17 went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed the altars and the idols and killed Matin, the priest of Baal, in front of the altars. Now that's revival. Where you over here on this side of righteousness cast out everything you've been worshiping, cast out all the idols that you've been bowing down to, and you say, the Lord, he will be God of my life. Then Jehoiada placed the oversight of the the temple of the Lord in the hands of the priests who were the Levites because his time was going to be taken up as king. And the services at the temple began once more. Josiah reigned for 40 years. And the Lord kept this priest alive as long as possible until he was... 130 years old. But there is one revealing aspect. In chapter 24 of 2 Chronicles, we find that Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years of Jehoiada the priest. But in verse 4, we begin to find a problem. Sometime later, Joash decided to restore the temple of the Lord He called together the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go to the towns of Judah and collect the money due annually from all Israel to repair the temple of your God. Do it now. But the Levites did not act at once. The Levites were willing to join in the rebellion against Athaliah because she was a tyrant. They were willing to go along with putting a new king on the throne. They were even willing to go along with setting up the tabernacle services once more. They were not willing for Joash to mess with their money. They thought their money was their own. They were not willing to allow the priest, Jehoiada, They were not willing to let Joash, the king, touch their money. And so they delayed the repair of the temple. So here are the religious leaders of the day. They are unwilling to spend the money on the temple because they wanted that money 
in their own pockets. They refuse to give. Finally, Joash summons Jehoiada the priest, and he says in verse 6, this is Second Chronicles 24, verse 6, Therefore the king summoned Jehoiada the priest, the chief priest, and said to him, Why haven't you required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax imposed by Moses, the servant of the Lord, by the assembly of Israel for the tent of the testimony? Now the sons of the wicked woman, Athaliah, had broken into the temple of God and had used even its sacred objects for the Baals. The king commanded a chest was placed outside of the gate of the temple of the Lord. The people brought in their money and they put it in the chest and gave it directly to the workmen who were responsible for repairing the temple. So they by the power of God, bypassed the Levites so they could not take the money for themselves. The temple was repaired, it was established. And as long as Jehoiada lived, burnt offerings were presented continually in the temple of the Lord. But now when Jehoiada was old and full of years, in verse 15, this is 2 Chronicles 24, verse 15, When Jehoiada was old and full of years, and he died at the age of 130, he was buried with the kings of the city of David because of the good he had done in Israel for God and his temple. To my knowledge, this is the only priest who was ever buried with the kings of Judah. He had functioned as a king, but he was the high priest. The people recognized and appreciated what he had done. So now I want you to see, he has the common people. They want God as their Lord. The high priest wants God as Lord. He influences the king to follow him. But the Levites, they want money more than they want God. So they go along with a form of godliness but they deny its power. Watch what happens. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and he listened to them. The power brokers, the money men, the bankers, just as it is in our day. They came to the king. And the word literally in the Hebrew means they got down on their faces before the king and worshipped him as you would worship a god. And they said many things to him. You cannot expect, king, that the people are going to continually make this journey to Jerusalem. It's too difficult. We need to ease up on the people. It's it's unreasonable to expect us to come and meet with the Lord here. So let the people worship wherever they want to worship. And with many words of seduction, these money men convinced the king to turn away from the Lord God of heaven. Verse 18, they abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and worshipped the Asherah poles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came upon Judah and Jerusalem. Although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against him, they would not listen. Please hear me. The reason sin must be utterly opened and confessed and dealt with to the bottom. The reason all of that is necessary is that our hearts would not be turned by someone who would come to influence us to turn against the Most High. This king was willing 
to outwardly serve the living God of heaven, but in his inner being, in his inner heart, he still wanted to be worshipped. Now please, could we be honest with one another? Is there any place in your heart where you still want to be cool? Where you still want people to look up to you and say, aren't you something? Aren't you somebody? Is there anything in your heart that still is touched when someone begins to make a criticism of you and you take it personally and you become defensive? You become angry? Is there any part of your heart that is easily influenced to move towards sin and destruction in your life? Do you blow with the wind? When you're with the Christians, you hang with the Christians. When you're not with Christians, you're just as comfortable hanging with the world. You can talk the Christian language. You can talk the pagan talk. Or have you dealt to the bottom of your sin until you've said, I am going to serve Jesus. I am going to follow Jesus. You know, I'm going to tell you honestly, I am not going to go the direction of pornography. I am not going to give one moment of my time to drugs or alcohol. I'm going to go as far away from everything that could possibly beguile me as I possibly can. I'm not going to drive as close to the edge of the precipice as I can without falling off. I'm going to move all the way away from the precipice. In my relationships, I'm not going to become sexually involved with someone. I'm going to keep my heart pure before God. And if God brings me another wife, I'm going to be pure with my wife. I'm not going to go the way of this world. If I go the way of this world with filthy talk, with with cursing, with judgments, with anger, with bitterness, then I will pay a heavy price for my sin. I've decided in my inner being I will not be swayed by those around me. I will not compromise Jesus Christ. I'm not going to live as an angry man. I'm not going to live as a As an accusing man, I'm going to live as a man of peace. I had a woman come up to me. I've spoken to her maybe once or twice in a public setting. She came up to me and she said, Pastor, I've been watching you. I smiled at her and I said, well, what do you see? She said, I see a gentle-hearted man. Tears in my eyes. I said, thank you. Thank you. You're saying you see Jesus. Yes, pastor, I do. That's what I want in my life. There have been many times when I have not been gentle hearted, when I've been judgmental and angry, where I have spoken words that have cut the heart of my brother, my sister. I don't want to live like that anymore. I've renounced that in the name of Jesus and I've asked him to utterly cut it off from me to make me a gentle-hearted man. But a man who could speak the truth in love. I believe that's what Jesus is making you into. Some of you in this room today are gentle-hearted. I praise God for that. Some of you still have some pretty sharp knives out. He wants to remove those from us. He doesn't want us to be swayed this way and that way, depending on how the wind is blowing. He wants us to be true and faithful to him, not turning to the left or to the right, but keeping our face fully toward Jesus. This man did not do that. And the judgments of God began to be poured out. The Syrians 
are going to come against him. But notice the depth of the wickedness that he falls to. In verse 20, then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. He was the priest who put Joash in the kingship. This son of Jehoiada the priest stood up before the people and said, this is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper because you have forsaken the Lord. He will forsake you. And they plotted against him. They went to the king and they said, we've got to kill this man. And the king gave the order. They went out and stoned this man to death. What depths of wickedness. This man fell to the depths of utter degradation, killing, killing, murdering the son of the man who gave him the kingship, who saved his life. That is the rawest and ugliest picture of sin in all of the Old Testament. The only place where sin becomes more clearly identified is at the cross when men nailed Jesus Christ to that wooden beam. So the Syrian army comes with destruction. The army was a much smaller army than Judas. And God fought on the side of the Syrians against his people. God will fight against you if you sin against him. Now, I want to share one more thing with you. God raised up another prophet to begin to speak to Joash. His name was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah would, for the next 53 years... Proclaim God's judgment against sin. But specifically, the context of what I'm going to share with you is Joash's sin. Jeremiah, the second chapter, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness? Verse 8, the priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who dealt with the law did not know me. That is, the Levites who wanted money instead of the knowledge of God. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal following worthless idols. This is what was happening in the day of Joash. And then verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So he's saying in the day of Joash, God's people stopped drinking from the flowing waters of the Holy Spirit. And they built for themselves their own cisterns. And the cisterns had cracks in it. So when they would pour the precious water in from Zechariah the prophet or Jeremiah the prophet, as they listened to the preaching of the word, it would go into their cistern. And by the time they left the service, it had all drained away. Because there was no living water springing up inside of their souls. Because they had personally turned aside from the Lord their God, and they were walking in wickedness before God. They were walking in sin before God that was unconfessed and undealt with. 
Some of you today are walking in sin that you know you have not fully confessed and made restitution for. And some of you in this house today don't want to give to the Lord. You want to get so close, but you don't want to give to the Lord. You have your own plans. You have your own agendas. You have the things that you want to be about with your life. The Lord is saying, deal with your sin. Get to the bottom of it. Some of you have no victory over your sin. The reason you have no victory over your sin is you love your sin. You love the way of wickedness. You have listened to those who would speak to you and say, you want to be free. Break the bonds. Go your own way. I've lived long enough to have buried enough people who went their own way to know that in the end, it's a way of sadness and destruction. Jeremiah is saying, The word of the Lord is a spring of living water. Verse 20, long ago you broke off your yoke. You tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Verse 25, do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. The world has turned to utter wickedness. The economy of America is collapsing. Right now, if you went to Europe, ages 19 to 24, do you know what the unemployment rate is in Spain for 19 to 24? These are the new graduates coming out of high school and college. It's about 44%. Unemployed, no hope of getting a job. All across Europe, unemployment among the young people, the new professionals who are graduating with degrees in biology and and television production and music and all kinds of degrees, they can't find jobs. They're beginning to refer to them as the lost generation of Europe. This is beginning to happen here in America. The whole economy of America is dying. It's collapsing. This last week, the Fed is not going to do a QE3. They came out and said, we're simply going to buy as many bonds as we need to whenever we need to. So now instead of QE1, QE2, QE3, now we're on perpetual Printing of money. The gold market and the silver market responded and went several dollars higher in the last week. Simply because the traders are recognizing that inflation is coming to America. If you work in the business field, in the corporate endeavor, you know things are growing more and more tight. It's harder and harder to find a job. Fewer new homes sold last year than any year since records have been kept. What we're watching is literally in Europe and in the Western world, we're watching the setup being done for the coming forth of the final Antichrist, the man of wickedness. Now, as we watch all of this happening, even as the churches watched in Nazi Germany, as incrementally their freedoms were stripped away from them, most of the churches went along with the system because they wanted to keep their luxurious lifestyle. And then the bombs rained down. And their cities were destroyed. And their luxurious lifestyle was lost anyway. 
Some brave souls like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others tried to rise up and fight against Nazism and Hitler. Bonhoeffer paid with his life. What are you going to do? What are you doing? I can tell you what I'm doing. I am endeavoring day by day to feast on the word of God. I'm endeavoring day by day to walk in holiness with no known sin in my life. I'm crying out to the Lord against the wickedness of my day. And I'm pleading for his grace in your lives. I'm pleading that he set you free of every bondage of sin that he break it in the name of Jesus, and that he put such a hatred in your heart toward that sin that you will no longer walk in it. God is looking for men and women, boys and girls, who will not blow with the wind of another person or with the lust of their heart, but people who will stand though the heavens fall And serve Jesus Christ. Will you be one who does that? Very, very few men or women, boys or girls, in this day will turn with their whole heart to Jesus Christ because the price is too heavy. But that price is indeed light, looked at in the light of God's judgment against wickedness. There's still time to turn aside. To give up the love of money, to give up the love of ease, to give up the love of approval, to give up the right to be bitter and angry and lash out when I choose, to be a man or woman or boy or girl of peace. There's still time to be that. What will you choose? Mighty God, would you give us the courage to confess our sin, to make restitution, to not live with lies about our sin, but to be very bold and forthright, to not hide in darkness, but to come out into the light. Lord, would you let your glory be seen amongst us and in us. Lord, this week there are men and women in this congregation who need full and complete deliverance, either from sin or from the circumstances they find themselves in. Lord, we need to be able to reach heaven today. We need our prayers to be heard. Would you give us the courage to repent and to make right what we have done and to walk holy before you? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a Prepare me. Lord, prepare me to be 
You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother and my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Of his glory.